Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. You have an international company, a huge company, admitting that it paid millions of dollars in bribes to different officials, one of whom was Amin al-Haq. Corruption and militancy and extremism and destability were all fusing at the highest levels of government because people were getting rich and they didn't want to let go of that money. And so they started contracting militant groups to create violence. In Bangladesh, the telecommunications minister was funneling money into a terrorist group named JMB. Killed dozens of people in Bangladesh and tortured hundreds of people. JMB beheaded a 20-year-old named Manwa. It was a shocking escalation of violence in Bangladesh. It was shocking to everybody in the country. There had been violence in Bangladesh. There had been killings. There had been political strife. But no one had ever been beheaded. It really signaled uh, that things had turned very dire. To meet the, I'm sorry, it's still so hard. To meet the father of someone who's been killed like that, the, the pain is still instant for him. So broken, so sad. This is A Nation for Thieves. I'm Justin Shankaro, and in this podcast, we're looking into the dark, shady underworld of kleptocracy. What is kleptocracy? It's corruption at the highest level. Prime ministers, presidents, politicians stealing your money. Yeah, that's right. These people literally steal tax money and use it for their own gain. It's a system of government in which Political power is arranged so that people at the top, a very small group at the top, can steal the resources of the people and the state for their own benefit. So they steal money that belongs to the public to, to build up the country, the national development. They steal it from the oil companies, from the military, from the civil service, etc. So it's, yeah, it's a government designed to allow few people to steal. Our window into the world of kleptocrats is the woman who single-handedly created the division at the FBI that specializes in this kind of high-power corruption. She's a superhero as far as I'm concerned. Deborah LaPravat has spent her life chasing down billions of dollars in dirty money that ends up hidden around the world, sometimes in plain sight. The opulence a lot of Picasso, I think Matisse were purchased, or Warhol was purchased. It's not just following the money from bank to bank account, it's what are they buying? Where did it go? It's the luxury cars, it's the villas, it's the money laundering through the art world. And that brings you back to New York. Mansions, penthouses in New York. All of this is going into U.S. real estate, it's going into artwork around the world. It's wicked crazy money. So you're pretty much on a global treasure hunt. 
Oh, absolutely. It's really interesting because every time there's a U.S. dollar transfer, 99% of the time it moves through a U.S. bank. Banks have now the responsibility to know their customer, but not only know their customer, know their customer's customer. The U.S. could do more. We do a great deal now, but we could do more. The solicit finance is moving through U.S. financial institutions. We have to ask every major bank, especially banks that deal with parts of the world where corruption is known to be rampant, can do more to really check what's the money coming through and remove the incentives for bankers. Banks are still profiting, but they have to know whose money is moving through their banks. Well, not only banks. I mean, you never know who you're schmoozing with, right? Aren't there Hollywood elites hobnobbing with kleptocrats? Yeah. The things you learn working these cases is that people need to be more discerning to their friendships. Right before I left the FBI, we initiated a case called the 1MBD case, and it was $5 billion stolen out of Malaysia. Another $5 billion. This seems to be just a... A nice a, round number. A round number. Uh, yeah. Yeah, $1 billion. Let's steal five. And, you know, maybe sometimes, uh, I mean, Abacha died, so he didn't get to take any more. If he had lived longer, the number might have been higher. The Malaysia 1MDB case, it got caught at $5 billion. It could have been more. Ukraine was missing $40 billion. I believe that Lebanon is currently missing $11 billion. Moldova lost a billion in three days. That's an interesting investigation. One of the big things was when I left the FBI, how many billion dollar cases I was investigating. But in this one Malaysia case, the money was stolen out of Malaysia. The money was supposed to be invested to build for uh, the wellness of the people of Malaysia. A great deal of the money ended up going to California. It funded Red Granite Productions, and Red Granite Productions ended up making the movie The Wolf of Wall Street, and I think Dumb and Dumber, too. Wolf of Wall Street was huge. That was directed by Martin Scorsese, starring Leonardo DiCaprio. Yes. Were they hobnobbing with a kleptocrat? Yeah, so the chief financier of that scheme was an individual, they call him Joe Lowe. You can Google him, and you, what you'll see is him partying with Leonardo DiCaprio, Paris Hilton, and Nikki Hilton. He was dating, uh, I think it was Miranda Keir, one of the Victoria's Secret models. When the FBI got the job of trying to trace the money from the theft out of Malaysia, the money that was used to fund the movie was the proceeds of corruption. I know that Mr. DiCaprio was very cooperative, and he had no way of knowing what money was funding the movie. Mr. Scorsese had no idea of what was funding, you know, where the money came from when it came from Malaysia. But, like, Miranda Keir was provided, I think, $8 million in jewelry, which she voluntarily turned over to the FBI. You know, the champagne was on him, and it never stopped. He owned a huge yacht, and so the parties were great. Does anybody wonder, like, where does this guy come from? Where do they get their money? People could be a bit more discerning. There's a lot. Sean Penn spent a lot of time with Hugo Chavez supporting him. I said, where do you think Maria got her $3.5 billion, Chavez's daughter? So it's not just ideology. It's like, this guy's a kleptocrat. 
and the list goes on of the number of people who have been seen hobnobbing with the rich elites from other countries. They don't necessarily know what the source of the money is, but did you do any research on who this guy is and how they made their money? I would encourage them to be more discerning about who they're hanging around with. If you're hanging around with other people in Hollywood, you know that they made their money doing this movie. But when you, when you have somebody coming out of Malaysia, like Joe Lowe, he went to uh, the Wharton Business School. You might also ask Harvard and the different schools, uh, do you understand who you're, you're educating or, or do you follow up on some of your uh, graduates? The bigger question to me is, is like how the, the ill-gotten gain buys access. It buys access into politicians. It buys access to Hollywood. Especially when money's coming out of certain countries, you have to ask, where's it coming from? The funding of Hollywood movies and parties is one side of the spectrum of what this money goes to. The other side is the funding of propaganda, the kind that sways elections, and even the funding of terrorism. You have an international company, a huge company, admitting that it paid millions of dollars in bribes to different officials, one of whom was Amin al-Haq. Amin al-Haq has then patronized a terrorist group that killed dozens of people in Bangladesh and tortured hundreds of people. We've been hearing from David Montero. David is a foreign correspondent who has spent much of his life in Bangladesh exposing corruption. And he's also a good friend of Debbie's. He told us the story of a young man named Manwa who was beheaded by the terrorist group being funded by the then telecommunications minister of Bangladesh. It was the first for me, and it was the first for Bangladesh. It was a young man, 20 years old, named Manwar. He was a political activist. What happened was that he was taken from his home. He lived in a rural part of Bangladesh on a farm. Parents were farmers. He was educated. He'd gone to, he was in the middle of college, and he was very involved secular politics. He, he was supporting a political party that believed in secular politics, and so against extremism. These militants showed up at his door, and they took him, they dragged him from the door of his house, and he tried to run. His house is surrounded by rice fields, and he tried to run across the rice fields, and they shot him in the back. And they could have left it there, they wanted to send this message. They were they were fashioning themselves after the Taliban. They made a show of beheading him, leaving his body. There are, thank God, no pictures of that, but it, it was well covered in the news. For me to cover that was heartbreaking because I went back to his family a couple of years later. And I mean, it's just one of those interviews that stays with me all the time. That, ah. To, to meet the, I'm sorry, it's still so hard. To meet the father of someone who's been killed like that, the, the pain is still instant for him. And um, so, so broken, so sad, and just so um, feeling so helpless, so helpless for what had happened to his son. It's an important story to tell, but I remember even God asking this guy what has happened is just, it's almost beyond me to ask, but I did. And he, 
you know, he described what it, what it was like to find his son like that. It's very tragic. And I went back to see that family again in 2015. So now you're talking 10 years later. Still, you know, that, that family was just, just destroyed by what had happened to their, own, their only son, one of two kids. I think that the helplessness that they felt was really devastating, that someone so powerful had not done this directly, but he had, he had the power to, to orchestrate this. Siemens, owning up to bribing officials in Bangladesh, assisted Debbie in piecing together how deep kleptocracy was rooted in the country. I had like five or six cases just in Bangladesh, right? And it was a big deal. It's the first corruption case for the government of Bangladesh. The United States was able to do so very quickly. And it showed international cooperation between the United States, Singapore, and Bangladesh to recover the proceeds of corruption. Much of it could be traced to former prime minister, Khalida Zia. When I was working the Bangladesh cases, they're like, well, a lot of your cases are against Khalida Zia and her sons. We well, have to remember, she was in power for like eight years. I said, nobody's bribing the person who's not in power. She has two sons. One is named Tariq and one was named Arafat, but everybody called him Coco. Tariq was like, they called him a shadow government, right? He was- Why? Because he was very powerful. People came to him because they couldn't go to the prime minister and say, you know, I, I want this, but they could go to her son and say, look, you know, uh, if you can help us get this contract, we'll give you this money. So there was a Chinese company that wanted to build a hydroelectric energy plant there. And they went to Tariq's business partner, Mamun, and said, you know, we want to do this, but what's it going to cost? And so Mamun said, look, wire $750,000 into my bank account. It was a city bank account. They did wire the money into the account. The woman who had to pay the bribe, the representative for the Chinese company, she made a police report. I had to pay this bribe on this day. And she provided her wire transfer information that showed that she had to wire money to the Singapore account. I got the records for that bank account. And what I found is that Tarek had a debit card off that account. So next thing I know, I see all these charges on Tarek's debit, like he had a dental surgery or he went to the doctor, or he was doing traveling, he was staying at a hotel. They hid the payments to Tarek by putting the money into Mamun's account. Tarek had a debit card off of Mamun's account and that is how the money got to Tarek. That's the tracing that I did. Tarek, I mean, he has been charged with being the mastermind of a grenade attack that happened several years earlier against opposition parties where 24 people died and 100 people were injured. A grenade attack? A grenade, he, yeah. Where, this is a, uh, like a terrorist attack. Yeah, I mean, it, it was in Bangladesh. It was considered a terrorism attack. He has uh, subsequently been found guilty of that in Bangladesh and is supposed to serve a life sentence. He's currently living in London because the UK does not have extradition with Bangladesh. Why are they hoarding these kleptocrats? Why are they allowing them to take residence in London instead of sending them back to their country? My problem with Tariq living there is like, okay, I get it. You don't have a treaty 
with Bangladesh that would compel you to extradite Tariq back. But does the lack of a treaty mean you can't? Can you just say, we don't want you here and send him back to Bangladesh? Debbie was asked to testify against Tariq in court in Bangladesh. The government of Bangladesh asked the U.S. Department of Justice if I would testify to my tracing of this money. 2011, I was the first, and to my knowledge, the still the only foreign law enforcement officer to testify in a Bangladeshi court. You know, that was harrowing. The FBI approves my testimony. One of the requirements is that Bangladesh is going to provide me with a security detail while I'm there to testify. From the moment I'm picked up at the airport, I have military personnel from the military in Bangladesh that are acting as my security detail. No one thinks we're coming, right? I mean, they kept saying, well, the FBI is not going to send anyone. I mean, like two days before I come, and we keep saying, no, we're coming. We arrived Thursday, right? And they're like, no, they're not coming. So you're testifying against Tarek. Yes. This guy who's been, at this point, accused of a terrorist attack with grenades where 24 people are killed. Yes. Are you scared? I mean, I would be terrified. I am, but this is what we do. A firefighter that runs into a burning building is a police officer who's pulling somebody out of a burning car. My job is to fight corruption. And so, yeah, I mean, I take every available precaution. I mean, I have friends in Bangladesh who are ensuring my safety as well. Uh, The government of Bangladesh has provided a security detail for me while I'm there. Hopefully nobody wants to create an international incident. A lot of people didn't want me to testify against Targ because he's the next prime minister. How is that going to reflect on them? Tell us what the courtroom looks like. I'll tell you what, you know, it's not something you see on TV, right? It's based on British law. So you have people in the black robes. You have the white uh, judicial wigs. It's packed. And what's very interesting is that I find out as I walk in, there's some security guards in the room and they're wrestling with two people. It was some reporters who had dressed as barristers and had snuck into the courtroom with their cell phones to record things. Of course, there's no recording devices allowed in the courtroom. And so those disguised paparazzi were removed from the courtroom. But was that kind of unsettling for you? What was unsettling is that there were 100 defense attorneys. And I walk in and I'm like, there are 100 people here. And I'm like, who are they? And they're like, those are Tarek's defense attorneys. I go, what do you mean? And they said, they all want to say they represent Tarek because if they win, then they can say they represented Tarek Rahman. I mean, there was a lead defense attorney, but all of these barristers in there were saying that they represented Tarek and his business partner, Mr. Mamun. A hundred defense attorneys. Uh, and that's why the courtroom was packed. There were like a hundred defense attorneys. And that's crazy. Yeah. I'm 5'8", blonde hair, blue eyes. And, and like, you know, we stick out in the courtroom. I'm getting ready to testify. Are you nervous? Well, I'm, I'm nervous because, like, this is, like, not a U.S. courtroom, right? The judge takes his seat, and uh, the prosecutor stands up and he says, I would like to call to the stand the FBI agent Deborah Laprabad. And right then, the lead attorney for Tarek stands up and he goes, Your Honor, it would be both illegal and immoral for Agent Laprava to testify. What God does she pray to? Does she pray to Hindu? Does she pray to Allah? How do we know we can believe anything she says? Also, does she does not speak Bengla? 
And the judge looked at him and said, you're speaking English and I'm speaking English. Agent Lapravat, please refrain from speaking American English so that I might understand you. And I'm like, I'll do my best, sir. I was sworn in in both English and Bengali. I swore not to provide false witness. I get up on stand and again, the difference between a U.S. court and a Bangladesh court. There is no court stenographer. They are taking everything out down in longhand. And the judges, they're writing everything down. And so they go, could you please state your name and occupation? And I said, my name is Deborah Lapravon. I'm a supervisory special agent with the Federal Bureau of Investigation. And he looks at me and he goes, I'll put FBI. <laughs> right there, I knew it wasn't going to be a verbatim transcription. But the judge was great. I mean, he ran a very efficient court. I get up and the prosecutor continues to ask me questions. And he goes, you know, Agent LaPravade, I understand that you're here today because you conducted this investigation. Can you tell us about it? He asked me very few questions, but I testified for the next hour and a half. And at the end of my testimony, it was time for cross-examination. This is the opportunity for the defense to ask me their questions. They stood up and said, we protest her testimony, and they stormed out of the courtroom. And I'm standing there, I'm still up on the, the bench, I mean, ready for cross-examination, and I, I look around like, am I done? And they're like, Agent LaPravat, you may step down. I was thinking, oh my gosh, this is great, I'm not gonna be cross-examined. Uh, you know, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> It's very harrowing because you're, you're not only representing the United States, you're trying to do a good thing. You're trying to get it right. You're trying to, you know, show that somebody's committed a crime. All of a sudden, I'm done. I'm not going to be grilled on a cross-examine. I step down from the stand and I walk out of the courtroom. What was it like to walk out of the courtroom? I call it my 15 seconds of living Lindsay Lohan. I walked out of the courtroom and there were a hundred photographers. All these flashbulbs going off. I mean, these photographs, they're online. You can see them. I look like a deer in the headlights. I'm hot. I've been sweating in the courtroom. It's very hot in Bangladesh. All these cameras, are, these flashbulbs are going off in my face. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like, you don't get notoriety being an FBI agent. You fly under the radar. You know, nobody knows who you are. They don't care. I walk out of a courtroom and my photograph's being taken by all these people. The newspaper that afternoon is FBI agent testifies against son of prime minister. I'm in a restaurant and people are reading the newspaper. And then suddenly I see that they're looking at the photograph and then looking at me and then looking at the photograph and then looking at me. And I'm like, hi. And the US embassy laughed. They're like, oh no, you're huge in DACA. If you want to see the photo of Debbie, you can see it on the show page. Check the link in the show notes. I remember very distinctly in 2011, I opened up a Bangladeshi newspaper and I saw a picture of a courthouse in Dhaka and this stark blonde haired woman, these crystal blue eyes walking surrounded by like dozens of policemen. And that's the first time I, I saw a picture of Deb. And I remember thinking that she looked formidable, but also I remember thinking, wow, she's really vulnerable. She's surrounded by all these police, and she's clearly come to make this really important testimony in a high-impact case, but you could just feel how the tension and how, how exposed, in a way, she was. 
And I found out later that this is never really done. It had certainly never been done in the history of Bangladesh that an FBI agent came to testify in such an important case. That wasn't the only time Debbie testified in relation to cases in Bangladesh. In 2017, uh, the government of Bangladesh asked if I would testify on their behalf. The government of Bangladesh was being sued by another company, a Canadian oil company. So they asked if I would testify to my tracing of bribes. So uh, I flew to Paris, the International Arbitration Court in Paris, and, and I testified there. That was a harrowing experience. Why? Well, because I'm before an international tribunal. I'm not allowed to have any notes in front of me, which means I spent the two weeks prior to testimony memorizing all of my data. So you have to talk about where the money is being transferred, the amounts, and you cannot have any notes? Yes. If the prosecution, they can show me a document, but I'm not allowed to have any of my notes. I mean, I'm an actor. I can memorize a couple pages of dialogue, but that seems like a huge amount of memorization. The night before I went into court, I, I just said, dear God, let me do well. So I go in, and to my right, there is a long table, and that table is representing Bangladesh. So there's two or three people from Bangladesh, as well as the attorneys from Washington, D.C., that were hired by the government of Bangladesh in this courtroom. To my left are the attorneys for NICO Resources, a Canadian oil company that was suing for trying to get payment out of Bangladesh. So I'm testifying, and while I'm testifying, one of the, I always, I always say the nasty defense attorneys, because, you know, they're very aggressive in, in their examination. And they said, you know, Agent LaPravade, are you an expert in the oil industry? And I said, no, but I am an expert in corruption in the oil industry. You know, you're not going to screw me up here, dude. I, you know, I, I've got this. I'm sorry, but I've been an FBI agent for 20 years. You're not going to intimidate me here. The testimony went very well, right. and uh, that was 2017, but a year ago, I was asked to go back to Bangladesh to testify against a co-conspirator of Mamun. I was all ready to go. FBI's hostage rescue team was going to be my security detail. I was being refit for body armor because, obviously, when I retired, I had to give mine back. So I was all ready to go, and we were planned, and the U.S. government decided that it was right before elections in Bangladesh and my testimony might be seen as political. So they asked to hold off. So here it is about a year and a half later and I talked to officials in Bangladesh last week and I'm like, you guys, and they're like, yeah, you're still scheduled to come back and testify. So I'm waiting for uh, a call from Bangladesh. We reached out to some of Debbie's colleagues from Bangladesh to speak with us about her case and proposed testimony. But for political and security reasons, they thought it wiser not to discuss it with us. It's kind of crushing to me because, you know, it's like evil thrives when good men do nothing. To me, it falls into that category that you need the people to speak up. I would also think that the Siemens case was a very good thing for Bangladesh. It was a very public addressing of corruption in the country. It was a successful prosecution of somebody politically incredibly high and well-connected. And yet here it is, so many years later, there's people within the government who don't want it publicized, don't want it talked about. It's incredibly disappointing because I think this was a win for Bangladesh. And I would hope that the current government there would want to tout this as 
a continued effort on their part to address corruption. Corruption is still alive and kicking in Bangladesh. And that's sad. I would have gone back any time in the last 11 years to testify, but there are people behind the scenes working to keep me from testifying. The fact that I haven't successfully gone back and testified indicates that those people that are trying to keep corruption alive are still well-connected, still in power, possibly at this point winning. I think I may even know the person that you're referring to. So it doesn't surprise me because people, again, they live there. The stakes are really high for them. There's so much sensitivity around this. They can't even you know, figure out all the angles that may come at them. At the same time, it's a little surprising to me. Here we are so many years later, and at least you talk about this stuff. It shows you really that these stories unfold over a long horizon. The fallout is, is still really dangerous. David's been investigating corruption as a journalist for over two decades. He's been on the ground, like Debbie, exposing kleptocracy wherever he can. I think there's more awareness, and that always is a good thing. I think corporations have more of a price to pay reputationally from corruption. According to some calculations, a corporation's value, 25% of its value is its reputation. Their name counts for a lot. If your name is sullied by a, a record fine like Siemens, where you're synonymous with corruption, it, it hurts. But according to my calculations, most corporations are paying a 1% fine. It's just not going to do it. They're not going to be pushed to change. It is a lot harder in a country like Bangladesh for a minister who Deb and I have been talking about to become who this guy became in the story we're talking about. I think that's a change. The press is much more aware of how this stuff works now, and they report on it. So people can't steal money as easily as, as they did. They probably have gotten much more sophisticated at it. There are things that have definitely changed in 10, 20 years, but there's a long way to go. Do you feel that there's definitely a strategic link between these Western Fortune 500 companies paying these oligarchs? And is that a form of kleptocracy? So are we part of the problem? Oh, yes. The World Bank says it's a trillion dollars, a trillion dollars. That's larger than many economies. A trillion dollars companies spend a year paying bribes for corruption? Yes, that's according to the World Bank. So we're talking somewhere between $1 trillion and $400 billion every year are paid in bribes by corporations seeking to do business. What they're after is the $4 trillion in public procurement funds, the money that countries spend on roads and bridges and aircraft and submarines. It's a ton of money, and these corporations want in so to answer your question, yes, we are absolutely, when I say we, Western corporations, multinationals that we've all heard of, are in on this. They, they're paying the bribes. They're not doing it directly. As Deb said, they're, they're hiring middlemen to distance themselves. If you take a trillion dollars and you multiply it over 30 years, 40 years, you're talking about pools of money that very bad people who ruled unstable countries have. You have to ask yourself, what do they do with this money? They fund political parties. They rig elections. They foment all kinds of havoc that we don't understand. That's what I tried to show in Bangladesh. People actually use the money they get from bribery to, to, to build 
private militant militias to kill people. Not always. That's a stark example. Yes, the oligarchs have $800 million yachts, but you can just imagine what they've done with that money politically. We know that some of it is washed up in the UK. We know that some of it is, is funding information wars and possibly, you know, manipulating elections in the United States. That takes money. That takes bankroll. There's obviously been a lot of news recently about kleptocracy with the war that's going on in the Ukraine with Russia. Did you ever investigate corruption in, in Russia? I was not able to go to Russia, but one of the stories I researched and reported on, it did not pan out to this extent that I could put it in my book because I didn't have the level of detail and clarity I wanted. Involved Hewlett Packard paying bribes in Russia. There was a quite a substantial number, you know, a high number of bribes. And I remember investigating what struck me was that the bribes were going to very high levels of the police to which Putin was connected. It was at a time when Putin was on the rise, 2001. And prior to that, back in the 90s, before Putin became president, I wasn't able to go to Russia. I can't do this and be safe. It's funny, I, I felt like I could go to Nigeria and be safe and Bangladesh and be safe. I really felt like if I go to Russia and report this, I, I just, I don't know enough about Russia, I, I won't be safe. What struck me though is that it's, we're talking about Hewlett Packard, you know, legit multi-billion dollar company that was paying willingly. I was using FBI documents, DOJ documents to follow this trail and very clear that Hewlett Packard knew what it was doing. It knew that it, the bribes it was paying was, was going to parts of, of the government that was connected to Putin. We talk a lot about the oligarchs and the money that they are stealing from the state. But, you know, private Western corporations have contributed to that pool. And we see that now, the corporations in Russia that don't want to pull out. There's a lot of money at stake. And I think people like Putin, oligarchs, part of the pillar of their wealth comes from the bribes that they get from corporations that want to do business. Putin is certainly considered a kleptocrat. You know, why aren't people doing more against Putin? And the reality is international law kind of prohibits going after a sitting head of state. So the U.S. and others go after his inner circle. That clearly is not having the impact that uh, we want it to have. That's coming up on A Nation for Thieves. A Nation for Thieves is narrated by myself, Justin Shankaro, with Deborah LaPravat. Produced by Charlie Webster and Jackson McLennan. Edited by Nicholas Palella. Music by Sean Hedinger. Executive producers, Charlie Webster, Justin Shankaro, Stephen Neely, and Deborah LaPravat. Audio provided by GBH Archives. Lionsgate Sound, engineered by Pilgrim Media Group. For more information, go to lionsgatesound.com.